Good Sunday evening. Water break is taking over our Sunday special slot as CrossPolitik moves to a daily show. So over the coming months, I will be assembling a team of contributors who will gather around the water cooler every Sunday night to bring you, hopefully, the best we can muster as you end your Sabbath with water break. My team, actually today, will include Rod Martin, uh, futurist, apologist Daniel Jacobs, comedian John Brainy, and I have a special guest with Aaron Wren. And more will be joining my team over the coming weeks. Thank you for the trust that you put in us, and we're excited to be doing a daily cross-politics show that will blow Fox News, CNN, ABC, and others out of the water. That's right, Cross-Baltic Daily. Join our club, subscribe to our magazine, and we look forward to seeing you at our next conference in Knoxville in October. This episode is brought to you by New St. Andrews College. Today's cultural shifts like sand. Yep, the culture shifts like sand, but New St. Andrews College is established on Christ, the immovable rock. It is a premier institution that forges evangelical leaders who don't fear or hate the world. Guided by God's word, they take the word Ooh, excuse me. They take the world back because they equipped with the genius of classical liberal arts and God honoring wisdom. Thanks to a faculty dedicated to academic rigor and to God's kingdom, go to nsa.edu for more info and bring your seniors out this coming year to on a senior weekend. All right. Cannonball or belly flop? Compassionate conservatives versus faithful conservatives. If you've been paying attention, and I hope you have been, To be conservative certainly has morphed over the years. So bad, in fact, to be conservative has come to mean that you will adopt democratic policies just 10 years later. Conservatives are losing the cultural wars. We're losing the political wars. And now we're in this pendulum, uh, you know, uh, uh, vacillating from George Bush to Donald Trump. We don't really know what it means to be conservative anymore. Now, masterminds like Edmund Burke and Russell Kirk have paved a lot of foundational principles of what it means to be truly conservative, and I recommend you dig into their archives. But while they tip the hat to the Christian faith, and they are serious about that tip, they really are, they they come off to me as, as still soft on connecting the Christian faith to conservatism. When we should be demanding, you can't be truly conservative without Christ as your foundation. How can you conserve anything without Christ? Uh, what is even worth conserving? What do you, how do you know what the value of what to conserve without a standard, without a standard in Christ? We should insist that the heart of what it means to be conservative is the Christian faith. And Jesus is the foundation for what it what is true and good conservatism, and we should not apologize for this. In fact, it is good for the conservative movement to insist on this very point. For decades, we have been taught to believe that conservatism can't exist apart from Christianity, or or at best, we can get modern conservatives to say that Judeo-Christian values have influenced the conservative movement, you know, at best. But if you insist on more than that, you will lose a majority of the Republican Party. You know, they, they think we need to be big tent or, or you know, um, connecting the Lordship of Christ over the conservatism, it means that it conflicts with what it means to be big, big ten. Or, or they might say, we need to keep the public square neutral. We need to reclaim the center. We need to own what it means to be truly conservative and insist that the Republican Party live by this, what I'm proposing, this Burkean 2.0 conservative vision. We have been plagued by the George Bush compassionate, compassionate conservatism. We really have. 
and which really means some sort of limp-wristed conservatism. That is what it has come to mean. And instead insist on faithful conservatism. I don't want compassionate conservatism. I want faithful conservatism. So my guest today is Aaron Wren. He's a writer and consultant in Indianapolis whose focus is on helping conservatives and the American church rise to the challenge of finding success in the 21st century. Um, now, Aaron, thank you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, as as you've tracked the conservative movement for over you know over the years, over the decades, what what has been your take on the trajectory of the Republican Party and and really the the broader conservative movement? American conservatism is an interesting beast in that it's a conservatism that is new. Uh, what we think of as conservatism today really dates to the post war period. Mm-hmm. And what is now known as the famous three-legged stool, which was sort of libertarian or free market economics, traditionalism, which sort of later became anti-communism. And there was always a dispute, especially in the early days, between the traditionalist, which was really Catholic, we could talk more about that if you want, sort of Catholic, uh, and the free marketeers over which was primary And they came up with this thing called fusionism, which basically said, we'll pretend to do both, that they're both Mm. important. Uh, That, you know, yes, we need free markets. Uh, Free markets depend on virtuous people, but virtue cannot be truly virtuous unless it's freely chosen. Mm -hmm. But really, at the end of the day, anti-communism was the glue that held the whole thing together. And after the fall of the Cold War, Uh, You know, a lot of what became conservatism really started to disintegrate, and you ended up with some of these things like compassionate conservatism, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. You know, I would argue uh, the neoconservative aggressive interventionist policy of someone like Bush probably played a much bigger role in discrediting his brand of conservatism Mm -hmm. uh, than his domestic policies around uh, compassionate conservatism. But that goes to show these invasions of Iraq, for example, sort of predicated on finding a replacement for mm-hmm. anti-communism as aggressive foreign policy aggression had to have an alternative outlet. Mm-hmm. And it sort of became, you know, democratic interventionism uh, abroad. Uh, but again, this is not really an ancient movement that goes back to Burke, contrary yeah. to what a lot of people think. Yeah. There's no, there's no chain of like master and disciple going back to Burke, the Burkean, lineage was constructed, you know, in the fifties, in this post-war era in order to provide essentially a backstory for the conservative movement going back to the founding and beyond. But the reality is it was a, it was a post-war political movement. Right. That, that, that's really helpful. You said earlier, um, communism, kind of the fight against communism kind of became the glue. And it seems like that's actually, um, uh, the play that gets conservatives excited. It's constantly against something. Yes. Um, you know, it's constantly against critical race theory. It's constantly against this, that, and so forth. Um, and and maybe this actually plays into why conservatives really can't build anything anymore is because they're just constantly against. Right. Well, conservatism didn't necessarily have a substantive view of what it wanted to accomplish. I mean, the free market, call it libertarianist, classical liberal, you know, economic vision really is essentially don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, just hands off, uh, let the economy run, don't regulate it. The government shouldn't do anything. 
and then everything will just magically take care of itself through the uh, mechanism of the invisible hand. So these are not people who are really interested in building anything economically. Uh, again, as you note, the uh, anti-communism was in fact an anti, sort of an anti thing. And, and candidly, although necessary at the time, mm-hmm. really went against the American traditions of foreign policy. If you were to say there was a tr- authentically conservative American tradition in foreign policy, you would say it would be to avoid foreign entanglements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that is persisted all the way up through, say, uh, Senator Robert Taft, uh, you know, who died in 1953. Okay. Uh, but again, it's, I suppose, and then traditionalism again, has sort of had something of a positive vision. It was really kind of Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, but traditionalism, you know, really went away uh, with the paleocons kind of when the, when the neoconservatives took over okay. uh, in the eighties, essentially the paleocons started going out and the neocons started taking over and the evangelicals started coming in mm-hmm. and the, the evangelicals were originally Democrats. So the first evangelical president was Jimmy Carter in 1976 right. That's right. newsweek called 1976, the year of the evangelical, mm-hmm. even in the early Reagan administration, a plurality of evangelicals, you know, identified Democrats. They really came into the Republican Party, though, but their agenda was negative. We're against abortion. We're against right. the sexual revolution. It's right. we're against, we're against. Right. So you're very right that conservatism has essentially been, we're, we're opposed to what the left wants to do, or we're opposed to communism, we're opposed to this. Mm-hmm. Owning the libs to this day, this idea that I came up with some clever meme yeah. or you know a clever tweet and really showed them is... Uh, definitely the, the conservative mode of operation. Uh, there's really not a substantive vision for governing. And you really see this in Ronald Reagan's nine most terrifying words in the English language. Yeah. I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. Yeah. Their basic view is the government's always the problem, never the solution. And government's inherently dysfunctional. So there's no positive uh, vision of governance. Now, your conservative vision could certainly apply to society outside of government. But when conservatism in America primarily manifests as a political movement, it's a political movement that says, vote for me. And I promise to never, ever do anything for you because, Mm -hmm. you know, the government shouldn't do anything. That's the problem. That's what that's why you end up with what we see today. And by the way, that government doesn't do anything really sort of becomes a pretext for catering to corporate special interest groups who get these giveaways and they call it the free market, Mm. but it's really a giveaway to some corporate special interest. So how come, uh, and maybe this kind of ties a little bit into what you were just talking about. You know, it seems like conservatives have a great track record of building good local cities and economies and then handing them over to the Democrats. I mean, I think of, I I grew up in Dallas, Texas, you know, it's like that used to be a conservative uh, city, Denver, Colorado, a number of these, um, conservative states that that are still conservative but have a lot of the big cities are going liberal um, we seem to it always seems to go from conservative to liberal you never see a big city go from liberal to conservative <laughs> right what what you know what what's the problem right. there where conservatives lose their big cities that they built but conservatives can never capture a big democratic city cities was the one level at which conservatives actually governed and did things. In the early 90s, there was this group of Republican super mayors 
like Rudy Giuliani in New York Mm -hmm. or Steve Goldsmith in Indianapolis. And they really had ideas about what they wanted to accomplish. But even then, you know, a lot of these cities tended to be dominated by democratic kind of ethnic political machines, Mm -hmm. you know, like the Irish, uh, you know, democratic machine in Chicago. Uh, Philadelphia was a Republican machine, but you know, local government was, was kind of, uh, kind of Democrat always. But again, these Republicans uh, like Giuliani got elected on the promise to essentially clean up all of the dysfunction in the cities. Yeah. And then they cleaned it up and kind of their raison d'etre went away. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the reality is I do think we have to take, you know, a hard look at that situation and say as great a mayor as Giuliani was, his legacy was essentially the extermination of the Republican Party uh, in New York City. And, of course, there's also been a lot of demographic changes. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, affluent uh, white professionals moved into the cities. And that group of people, the group of kinds of people who work for woke capital, who work for Fortune 500 type companies, those people are now, by and large, progressive uh, and to the extent that they vote Republican or think Republican, they're traditional kind of big business Republicans, U.S. Chamber of Commerce style yeah. Republicans. But they're, you know, it's, it's just a different social environment as one as well. Someone once told me, uh, you know, the people that voted for Rudy Giuliani in 1994 in New York City are in one of two places. They're either in Florida or they're in the cemetery. Oh. And so there's. There has been a Democrat. There has been quite a bit of demographic turnover in the cities uh, as well. Yeah. Of course, they're heavily minority, and minorities, uh, you know, have traditionally overwhelmingly voted for uh, the Democrats, certainly yeah. since the mid-century era. So let's end on a positive note here. Um, you know, what do you think? Uh, what do you think good is happening, or what do you think should be happening uh, in the conservative party moving forward? I love your idea that we need to get beyond left and right and start thinking about truth. You know, this idea of left and right dates to the French revolution. We're still living in that old world. We need to discern and align ourselves with the truth. And then we need to be willing to act on the truth in the world in wherever we are placed affords us the possibility of doing so in a wise and prudential matter. Whether that be in our homes, in our businesses, in our town, Mm-hmm. Or as governor of a state, uh, like say Ron DeSantis, who's you know taking strong action, for example, uh, and saved huge numbers of school kids in Florida from having their lives destroyed. Children who might have fallen behind ended up dropping out, ended up in prison if they'd gone to virtual schools. They're like, no, we're going to stay in schools. We're going to fight against these shutdowns, and. He hasn't just done, you know, symbolic social things like picking fights with Disney. He did real substantive things that helped the people, including the most vulnerable kids in his state. And that's what we need to be doing uh, when we have the opportunity. That's good, Aaron. Thank you so much for uh, joining Water Break. Uh, you guys can uh, find out more uh, at AaronRen.com. He's on Substack. He's also on Twitter. So make sure you check Aaron Wren out and his cultural commentary. Uh, you, I believe you also sent out a weekly email uh, as part of everything that you're working on. Yeah. So you go to AaronRen.com and sign up. Uh, sign up for the free list. Don't have to sign up for the paid list, and you'll get, you'll get lots of stuff. I'll make sure you get it all. All right. Thank you, Aaron, for joining us. Thank you. So my my next guest is is Rod Martin. He's an entrepreneur, futurist, and philosopher capitalist. He's no uh, stranger to cross politic, and but he's actually joining the Water Break team. 
uh, and over the coming months, over coming weeks and months, I'm, I'm glad to have Rod Martin on Waterbake. Rod, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. And thanks for being part of the uh, the Waterbreak team at the water cooler, you know? Well, it's good to be part of that, too. And I'm really grateful for the work you guys do. Um, I've, I've been involved in a lot of politics, too. I, I studied political theory at Cambridge. I was policy director for Governor Huckabee. I've worked on Capitol Hill, president of the National Federation of Republican Assemblies. My, my day job, of course, is technology and, and finance. But, but we have to be 100% committed to the advancement of Christian civilization at this time. It's under assault. It's coming apart. It's going to be laid low. There's no reason for us to suspect that we we aren't facing the imminent danger of a dark age. Mm. But there's also no reason for us to think that's necessary. We absolutely have the power, and we certainly have the Almighty God to Amen. stop those things mm-hmm. and turn that the right direction so i'm very encouraged about what you're doing and i'm very encouraged for the effect it's having now rod when we've talked over the years when we've talked offline and uh, about politics or about business or about politics in the sbc and so forth you've you've tended to be more of a pragmatist than i am um and, and so how how would you if 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 we're trying to kind of refresh reclaim the conservative party uh there's still you know, we still have big divisions within the party itself. We have, you know, what we call what have been termed rhinos now, Republican in name only. And then you kind of have your your soft conservatives, and then you kind of have your your uh, almost libertarian conservatives in the party. Uh, how do we reclaim, you know, true conservatism in the Republican Party when it, there's a lot of fracturing there? Well, we have to understand that it's not so much reclaiming; it is establishing. Okay. You know, and, and your last guest, brilliant, brilliant man, uh, has written some really good stuff lately that everybody should go read. Um, you know, lined out kind of a history of the conservative movement in this country. Everybody was a conservative in the sense that we would think before around the turn of the 20th century. So you didn't need a conservative movement. You had divisions within what we would call conservatism. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists or you're talking about various approaches to economic policy in the 1870s. But then with the rise of progressivism, which is which is just a form of socialism uh, around the turn of the 20th century, and then it's discrediting by around 1920 where they started to steal the word liberal Rather than rather than continue to be tagged with their own name, uh, two generations, three generations had to completely die off before they started being willing to use the term progressive again. Mm-hmm. You actually had to have a conservative movement. The Republican Party was wiped out on the ground after 1930, absolutely decimated. You could still elect a president after 20 years later uh, in Eisenhower, but he obviously was not a movement conservative. Taft okay. was defeated. Mm-hmm. Goldwater was annihilated. We are a mm-hmm. new thing. And that's the thing that a lot of our, especially younger conservatives don't really grasp that the conservative movement is almost ex nihilo in modern times. We have gained ground consistently. We've been thwarted by a lot of guys like the, you know, Romney, McCain, et cetera. But 
we're actually gaining a lot of ground in the Republican Party, mm. just not quickly enough to stop the slide in the country to the degree we wish. Mm-hmm. So uh, Republicans for decades, it's, it's a, a lot of this is starting to make sense with what you were just saying and with what Aaron was saying, kind of like about this new Republicanism that started in 1950s, 60s or rebooted. Um, and it, it seems to me since then we've had kind of short moments of victories surrounded by cascading decline into soft liberalism. So uh, it, it goes back to my original monologue comments where uh, Republicans will do what Democrats do just 10 years later kind of thing or adopt Democratic policies kind of 10 years later. So we'll have some victories, but then we're still kind of going the same direction. You know, Republicans, uh, Democrats are doing 80 miles an hour off the cliff. You know, Republicans are doing 60 miles an hour off the cliff. What, I mean, how do we turn this thing around? Well, we win elections. Uh, you know, and, and I, I'm not being tried. I'm, I'm absolutely serious. And we did that in 2016 and we've done it more and more, but you have to understand once again, the last really conservative president we had before Reagan was Cal Coolidge. Herbert Hoover was a progressive. Yeah. He did basically the same things FDR did. FDR instituted a soft socialism. Right. Uh, we're, we're seeing that play out to this day. You don't have a true conservative president until Reagan in 1980. And then look who follows him. The Bushes, Romney, McCain, all that crew were actually of that old, what we used to call Rockefeller Republican bent. The guys who actually literally wanted to do the same things the Democrats wanted to do, just slower and cheaper. Balance the budget while we raise your taxes and screw everything up. So, so we've had this internecine war going on for decades, basically my entire lifetime. I'm 52 now, and we're winning it slowly. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. People have to get involved in the party. They have to get involved in county committees and you know, become elected state committee people, become elected national committee people. They have to run for office. They have to support good candidates. Mm. You just mentioned Ron DeSantis. Ron was not a shoe in Ron was supposed to lose big, and he and he actually only won uh, the general election by 0.41%. Mm-hmm. He's on track for a bang-up re-election. He's probably going to be the next president if it isn't Trump. We, it, you know, but you have to actually go get those things. Ted Cruz is a great senator. He'd make a great president. He'd make a great Supreme Court justice. He was down 30 points in the Republican primary when he started. He had two opponents. And he ends up the senator. Rubio, yeah, kind of a mixed bag, but infinitely better than his Republican opponent, who you'll recall is the now Democrat, Charlie Chris. Oh, yes. Rubio was down 20 points and beat Charlie Chris in the Republican primary. We have to be gutsy. Frankly, we have to be populist. We have to actually make conservatism apply to real people's lives, day Mm -hmm. in and day out lives, to engage the masses to see that conservatism really is better. And then we actually have to go do the work. And that's not just the candidates. Mm-hmm. We've got to actually, as individuals, be part of that process, Christians especially. If you want to see the Republican Party and the United States of America actually exemplify the sort of historic Christian civilization that we care about, and, and even more than that, a, a better and constantly improving Christian civilization that yeah. is better than any of our affairs ever had, if you want those things, it's every one of our tasks. We can't leave this to the professionals. This is this is a bottom-up country. 
until somebody makes it not be. And we have to fight for that bottom up. That will not happen by on high from Washington or Tallahassee right. or Boise. That will mm-hmm. happen with us. Mm-hmm. Now, Rod, um, where is the... Where's the church? What does the church need to be doing in all this? Um, it seems like the church has kind of set, um, kind of played a back seat to politics for various reasons. For you know, the church not being discipled well, the church pastors believing that they shouldn't be preaching and in, in, into the political sphere, separation of church and state. There's all these layers there, but uh, where should the church be focusing on in this in this situation? Well, I've been very, I've been very consistently disappointed. with pastors in my lifetime. I love pastors. I try to serve pastors. You know, I was recently an officer of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. We we love these men, and some of these men are amazing. Some of these men seem to not know what their job is. You know, they talk about everything gospel issue, but you don't see a lot of evangelistic work on the ground, door-to-door, getting it done. You see the Mormons do that. You see the Jehovah's Witnesses do that. You see the Democratic Party do that. You don't see an effort to win cities to Christ in the way that you did in the 19th century. So that's first and foremost. It doesn't matter how persuasive we are about politics. If the hearts are unregenerate, they're going to vote for sin. So that's first. The second thing is, you know, you've got to preach the full counsel. The scripture speaks to literally everything. We don't have to wonder what God thinks about abortion. We don't have to wonder what God thinks about tax policy. We don't have to wonder what God thinks about, about oppressive government control. Actually, moral issues, much more than they are political issues. If the pulpits were ringing with God's truth, Mm -hmm. the church would act. It doesn't have to be a political sermon. It doesn't have to be endorsement of candidates. Christians who actually know the word inside and out are never going to support the kind of evil that is prevalent today. Mm -hmm. Wow. Rod, thank you so much. Uh, RodMartin.org. You can also follow Rod on Twitter. Uh, Rod will be a regular contributor to uh, the Water Break. He's part of of Team Water Break here. So uh, thank you, Rod, for your time. Born and raised in India, yep, he received his uh, pre-doctoral degree in Indiana, in India, and did advanced studies in international development at the University of Manchester, UK. This is a smart man we're talking about. He went to University of Oxford to study theology and to Biola University where he earned a degree in Christian apologetics. Jacob, my new teammate here, has a PhD in intercultural studies from Biola University, uh, and so welcome to the water break team, Jacob. Thank you for joining us. Good to be here, Gabe. Uh, as Rod said, you know, I'm so excited to be here as well, joining you and to see what you're doing and the impact that you're having to create a faithful and authentic public square. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob. Well, I'm, I'm excited for you to be on the team here, man. Um, with your, I, I thought it was interesting, um, kind of thinking through conservatism, thinking through this issue uh, here in the U.S., but with your international background, how do you view this conversation on, on conservatism, left, right, you know, uh, Republican vision, so forth? And again, uh, just as Rod said, you know, that people are conservative, uh, and this is true even with regards to people around the world. Um, how governments work and how people actually engage 
in public policies and things like that. It may be argued that there, is, there may not be a single set of policies that we may regard as universal. However, when it comes to the longings, uh, I would say the longing behind the meaning of conservatism, it is very much universal. Uh, and I would, as a Christian, say that it's because uh, we are made in the image of God and we can't deny that fact. Mm-hmm. However, when it comes to those longings, um, the foundations for justifying those longings aren't similar. Uh, and that is why uh, they lead to different ends. Mm. Uh, if I may share, uh, in, in the Eastern context as well, it works out uh, more in terms of the idea of civilizationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this idea of conserving uh, certain things, but for the sake of the civilization. And uh, what happens in that is that the notion of order without li- liberty prevails. Whereas here in the Western context, we see the emphasis on order mm-hmm. liberty. Interesting. And that is valuable. Um, and with regards to, you know, uh, the spheres of sovereignty, as we would understand, we maintain a, a, a good distinction between church and state, whereas what it ends up happening in other uh, cultural contexts is either you would separate it so much that the queen shall not meet, whereas you actually mix so much that you can have any distinction uh, to maintain. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think uh, Christianity very well offers us uh, the foundation and the criteria to maintain um, a, a right distinction between the role of church and the role of state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would also say that, uh, you know, uh, in terms of our public behavior, it works out in four different ways. Uh, and in, you can put different cultures in those categories. Uh, and I think you kind of touched on that a little bit. Um, there, are, there are four or maybe three primary uh, kinds of public square. One is the naked public square that argues that we have nothing to do with religion, keep it private. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to inform the public square. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is the second public square that kind of like removes um, uh, every distinction between the church and the state, uh, for example, if, if you look at Saudi Arabia, you know, th- there is no distinction between church and state in their context. Mm. Everything has to be sacred. It has to have a label that it is made by religious uh, mentality. But then there is third public square, which I think uh, works out most in the Western context, also in the Eastern context as well. Uh, however, I believe it's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And we call it a civil public square, where okay. the idea is about building bridges, right? Mm-hmm. But guess what? We are the ones crossing the bridge all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and, right. and that is dangerous. And I think what is required is that, uh, uh, and you kind of touched on that, what we need is a faithful public square, an authentic public square where we actually uh, step in uh, with interventions that are informed and grounded in values that are objectively true. Yeah, that, that that's really, really helpful. Um, for our listeners, so you were... Uh, born in India, you you grew up there. Maybe give just a little bit of bio, a little background of of growing up in India, how you became a Christian, and how you came to the U.S. Yeah, so I grew up in India, central India, a city called Bhopal. My parents are from the south. Uh, they were born and raised Christians, traditional Christians. My dad comes from uh, Syrian Orthodox background. My mom comes from Maltoma background, which is basically they claim their lineage all the way back to St. Thomas, who landed in India um, uh, 2,000 years ago. Um, so I had, but then later in their life, they came to faith. So I had a Christian upbringing. Uh, and then I was pursuing higher education, went into international development, 
I was thinking that I might be going that route, but God had a different purpose. And he orchestrated things around me in such a way that he called me out into ministry. And I responded to that. And that's what took me to Oxford and then to Biola. But then I traveled quite a bit. I traveled for work, for studies and for ministries uh, around the world. And that kind of developed uh, a passion in my heart to really look at what is it that makes the Western civilization different and how, how has Christianity informed that and what foundations it has provided. And that captured my attention so much that I started studying about it. Mm. And God had, had its way of directing our path to come to the West as missionaries here. So currently we are under a missions organization called Missionary Gospel Fellowship. Okay. And uh, what we are trying to do is actually uh, advance the truth of Christian faith and promote its excellence in public life. Mm-hmm. And the way I do uh, that is by helping the church to do proper cultural exegesis alongside biblical exegesis, which I think is a, a much needed engagement in the church today. That's, that's very helpful. Um, Jacob, uh, last, last thing, give me, give me your, uh, you know, what's your take on the state of the church here in America and, and uh, how long you actually, how long have you been in America and then kind of what's your take on the state of the church here in America? So I've been here for about 10 years now and, uh, been both at the same time, uh, culture, uh, right in the forefront, you know, with issues, of con- uh, connected to gender issues and, uh, critical race theory, and I've been kind of like nudged into that space recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the, the state of church, oh, where should I start, you know? Uh, I wonder as to how did church come to a place where we have, agree, we agree with the secularists that the church has nothing to contribute to the society. Oof. And that bothers my mind. Yeah. And I think we have somehow lost the idea of catechizing our imaginations that ground the innovation, the, that grounds a virtuous society, that grounds uh, authentic, authentic learning mm-hmm. uh, in education and things like that. Um, one thing I would say is that we have failed, uh, if I look back over the decades, in doing proper cultural exegesis. Um, we have failed analysis of where we are as a culture. Mm-hmm. And not just that, how do we translate that into proper advocacy? And then how do we actually uh, actualize that which we are advocating. But the most important thing, and I think you're doing a good uh, 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 path here in promoting the fact that we need to amplify the good that Christianity has to offer Amen. in building a flourishing Amen. society. Uh, and this will actually help us to get uh, over historical amnesia that so much mm. prevails here uh, uh, in the church which is sad. So what we need to be doing is actually learn about what Christianity has offered in terms of the civilization, as Rod also mentioned about that. And I think we need to amplify it. There's a need for people to hear that. There's a need for our children to hear about that. Yes. So that they would, be, uh, they would uh, value that and um, pass it on as inheritance, as heritage to future generations. Jacob, uh, I think you all, my listeners, can see why I invited Jacob to be part of the team. Very, very smart. Very thankful for you, Jacob. Look forward to uh, um, locking arms with you on water break in the in the future. Thank you for coming on the show, Jacob. Thank you. What a joy. Yeah. So it, it comes, uh, for those who are new to the show, um, John Brannion's been with me since the jump. And uh, we we wanted to one of the things that we, me and John were, were really passionate about is kind of um, give you 
kind of reestablish your confidence back in the news. You can go ahead and bring John in. Uh, you know, no one can trust the news. There's fake news all over the place. There's, you know, you know, CNN, ABC, Fox. I mean, it's all, they got Bruce Jenner. It's all fake. And so, CBC, right. Yeah. Of it's real. Yeah. yeah. What's another one, John? <laughs> Drudge uh, Report? Uh, <laughs> HGTV. <laughs> That's, do they have a news network? Is that your news source now? Ugh. That's my news source. I tune into HGTV and the Home Shopping Network. That's where I get all of my <laughs> all of news. your news. So every week, yeah. every week on Water Break Sunday Special, we we're bringing you real news that that John Brandon can trust. That's our litmus test. News that John Brandon can trust, and um, and so we really feel like this is an important part of what we're doing at Water Break is is reestablishing your confidence. And news that you can trust in, the, and that litmus test is always going to be comedian John Brandon. Comedian John Brandon, thank you for joining me on Water Break, my man. Mm-hmm. You know it, Gabe. I would. I've been with you since the jump, as you said. Whatever yep. that means. <laughs> whatever. So, news that John Brandon can trust. Uh, Wonder Woman is trending in woke circles as a trans icon mm-hmm. um, because she tweeted out that this other, you know, the old. 60s, 70s version of Wonder Woman. Uh, the actress for that. I mean, yeah, there's an old version. Maybe it's 80s. I don't know. The actress for that, she tweeted this out. She said, I didn't write Wonder Woman, but if you want to argue that she is somehow not a queer or trans icon, then you aren't paying attention. Is that what Linda Carter said? Yeah. You, you, you got her name, man. You killed it. You nailed it. Well, of course I have her name because I had a massive crush on Linda Carter when I was <laughs> a boy. How do you not? How do you not have a boy? And I did, as a, as a boy, how do you not have a crush on Linda Carter That's... back in the late 70s when she was Wonder Woman? And it never occurred to me, hey, this is a iconic symbol for trans. Never once. Yeah. It, it, I was... I was in love with Linda Carter. Well, and not I, because she was a symbol for transgenderism. <laughs> uh, confessions of John Brannion. I didn't know this was part of the uh, the, the news here. News that you can trust, though. Uh, well, that's what struck me about it was her tweeting this. Is no one, no one in the seventies thought that she was an icon for transgenderism. Not no. even, not even. She she wouldn't even have admitted that in the seventies. No, no. That that is. Um, that is nothing but bold face pandering. And if you were yeah. to, no, if real. you were to throw the golden lasso around her and ask her if she's telling the truth, she would say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a Wonder Woman reference for all of you people who that's know good. the, the that, lore. That's that's really good, John. Wow, you just mm-hmm. you just upped the water break game with that reference. Mm-hmm. That was incredible. That's why I'm here. Yep. Well, news that John Brandy can trust. We have to bring it to you. Um, uh, I mean, this is PG. You're fine. You're fine. Parents, you're fine. A, a woman wants to marry her toy airplane she's uh, sexually attracted to. That's it, John. Okay. What do you do with that? That's it? That's it. Is she going to be able to? What state is this in? Uh, she is actually. Um, let me look that up for you. Do we know? Uh, do, do, do. I'm looking it up. And it's a toy airplane. It's not a. Yeah, but it's like a bed size. I mean, it's a big airplane. I mean, it's a big toy airplane. Looks like it's six foot. 
six foot long. Wow. Yeah. Nice so wingspan. I see it. It's nice. Nice player plane. Does it? Does uh, this it is in this is in Germany. This this lady's oh, from Germany. Germany. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, I would. I don't know much about German law. Are they gonna Are they gonna allow it? Is she gonna be able to marry a an airplane? It, it, the article doesn't say anything about that. But if you remember in California, there's a gal there who's wanting to marry um, a train. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember that. Do you remember that? That makes less sense to me than marrying an airplane. If you were going to marry, <laughs> you're going to because if you're going to marry a mode of transportation, you would want to marry one that was the most efficient and uh, and expeditious. You know, a train. You can go anywhere in the world if you're married to a train or a plane. But if you're married to a train, you're pretty much limited. You can only go where the tracks are. You know, but it's true, but it could be like, you know, one of those situations where like a 25 year old meets a 55 year old man, you know, just wanting to want that age thing in there, that age factor. You mean the person that falls in love with a train? Yeah. Because, it, because train is or, identified with all, yeah, the, that's right. <laughs> for the nostalgia. That's right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, well, no, I didn't hear about the train thing. I hadn't heard about the plane thing. I believe it. And I hope that. I hope that it happens. I hope that she's allowed to <laughs> to go through with it because I would be I would be curious to hear what the vows are. Yeah, I would I would love to hear the vows. I would love to hear the exchange of vows. I would love to hear uh, and see how they set up residency. What the what if it turned into like a Johnny arrangements are? What if it turned into like a Johnny Depp you know Amber situation? And but the the plane can't respond. Well, that is one reason why it would be easier to be married to an airplane than to be married to Amber Heard. <laughs> if I was counseling somebody, that's good. Well, should I marry Amber Heard or should I marry a train? Uh, I would say train every time. Train, train every time. Yeah, every time. <laughs> News that John Brainy can trust. Last one here: California appeals court rules that bees are now. Fish, so they can be included under Endangered Species Act. Bees are the Endangered Species Act covers fish, and so the judge just said, "Well, bees are fish now." Mm-hmm. This is California, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, that is uh, that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> I, I would, I would say. That bees, why not make bees um, something? Why not make make bees something more exotic? Why not make them Bengal tigers rather than fish? Because fish, That's true. Fish, nobody cares about. Nobody cares about endangered fish, do they? Mm-hmm. When was the last time you heard somebody say, "Oh, we're worried that this fish is, might go extinct"? I mean, people don't know; they don't care. But if you make it a a polar bear or a tiger, make it yeah. a tiger yeah. or a well, everybody's well. going to be. You know, everybody's going to be all worked up about it. So yeah. we can't let the we can't let the tigers go extinct. Well, I think that's short sighted on the judge's part. I think <laughs> that they should have been a little more. If they're going to if they're going to resonate with the passions of the animal rights activists and mm-hmm. the climate people, you got to pick an animal that they care about. They don't care about fish. Yeah, no, you're right. They do care about tigers. Yeah, you're right. Where are you at right now? What's in your background? Oh, I'm out. This is a. Uh, it's my pool. 
No, oh. this is a it's a fake background. I didn't know. I didn't know. We're, we're doing this different than we've done before, we and so I didn't know how. I didn't. I wasn't prepared. I don't have my background ready. Okay. Next week it'll be much better. Yeah. Well, I, I changed things on you last night, and I didn't tell you it was my fault. And I, I realized this morning when I was texting you, I'm like, "Hey, you coming on the show, John? What's up? Where you at?" And you're like, "Yeah, I'm on. Where are you at?" And I was like, yeah. wrong, wrong. I gave you wrong link." So. so I broke. So I broke into my neighbor's house. That's what this is. He's <laughs> on vacation. He has and bees and fish back there. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a whole tank full of uh, bees. Of fish, he's got a whole hive of fish out there that he gets. He's got a whole hive full of honey fish out in the backyard, That's and great. Uh, <laughs> pollinating all the flowers. Yeah. All right. Well, they lost their well, minds in California. Because has anybody is anybody still unclear about that? Is there anybody still in the United States? It's like, yeah, you know, California's. We all know, don't we, that uh, they're you know. that they're insane. Yeah, I I I don't know to this day why California is still able to pay its own bills, and it really can't. I mean, they bar- they had to borrow a bunch of money from the federal government, but so so all right, let's put the let's put the bees on an endangered species list. What does that fix? How does that solve the problem now that they're now they're listed as endangered because they're fish, not bees anymore? But how does that practically? change anything if the bees are in trouble of going extinct so what i mean now now they're on a list it's social engineering man that's what it is they're just trying to get all the farmers to care i guess well it's it's being on an endangered species list does actually nothing to keep you from becoming extinct yeah as far as I, as far as I know, well, I, I wonder. You know, beehives in California are very important for farmers, and so I wonder what this kind of means to them and how they operate their farms. But that's the, that's something the Californians got to work out, man. I ain't worried. Yeah. You know, I live in Idaho. You live in Indiana, like, where the bees are bees and the fish are fish. <laughs> that's right. And everybody, <laughs> that's right, knows where they stand. That that should be Indiana's slogan, man. That's what that should be. Where bees are bees and fish are fish. That's it. That's it, man. Well, hey, everybody. Thank you for joining Water Break. This is going to be, we're going to be here every Sunday night as I build out my team. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you catch us Monday through Friday. Cross Politic drops every day for your nightly news and commentary at 6 p.m. Uh, and we will have a uh, guest uh, uh, in and out of those uh, nightly shows also. So we're very excited. For the nightly um, show that we're dropping with Cross Politic, it's a lot of work, uh, so we appreciate your club membership support. Also, don't forget to uh, sign up for our conference. Go to fightlaughfeast.com. It's going to be October 6th to the 8th. Uh, can't wait to meet all of you in Knoxville. So until Monday, Monday, tomorrow, have a good night, and Lord bless. A republic is about the rule of law, not men. Armored Republic is devoted to seeing the God-given rights of free men preserved against mob chaos, criminal evil, and the jackboot of tyranny. Every purchase of body armor is another free man equipped to resist tyranny, another brother in arms, another hardened household ready to face down the wolves. Body armor is a tool of liberty, and every tool is for the purpose of working or keeping, creating or guarding, building or fighting. Join the Armored Republic. Build. Fight. Fight.